So uh, we continue the series on the heart of Christianity. And I remember when I started this, I built it as uh, what I think is uh, the best book out there on deconstructing and reconstructing your faith, which means that it can be incredibly challenging. And uh, so far in the class that uh, I've been following up with, which by the way has had just great attendance and incredible discussions every week, uh, it has not failed. <laughs> so we've seen people uh, really work through this process and still working through this process. And I have news for you. If you've been paying attention to this or coming to my class, this is a process that should never, ever, ever end. Uh, our life is a journey. Life is process. That's reality. And how can we learn and grow for the duration of our lives? That is really the question, which is a wonderful thing. I remember one time I was talking about this, and we had uh, one of our uh, saints here from uh, years ago who passed away in recent years. Her name is Doris Alley. And I was talking about all these things, you know, that the faith asks us to do. <laughs> and afterward, right out loud in the middle of the sermon, she says, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> Which if you knew Doris, she'd just have this wonderful smile on her face. And she was a great example of what a Jesus follower uh, can look like. Mm -hmm. And anyway, um, it's not that, though. It is an invitation to grow and become. It's an invitation to attend or to go visit Yosemite regularly and see new sites, new vistas, things you hadn't considered before, which is challenging, but the payoff is well worth it. So today we're going to be talk, looking at a story that uh, churches all around the world are looking at. This is one of the lectionary texts, and several of them are strung together. Um, there's one that I really want to focus on today, so that's the one we're going to highlight and all of the texts that uh, global churches are looking at today uh, deal with this calling forward into a new way of thinking. And this really dovetails perfectly uh, with this idea of practices. What are we supposed to be doing as Jesus people, as people who claim to follow Jesus, claim to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? And uh, so it started off, uh, I'm not going to share this whole story, but it starts off with the calling of Sarah and Abram who are uh, the patriarch and matriarch of our faith and the Jewish tradition and also the Islam tradition, uh, at, least, uh, at least one of them, uh, at least Abram is. And so these two in their story of saying yes to an invitation to leave where they were and to start a new way of doing life and a new way of doing faith is massive. They left their comfort. They left their renown. They took a lot of their money with them, so good for them and some of their entourage, uh, but their whole venture was to step out like this faith song that we just sang calls us to do. Try something new. Let's break the paradigms and start over. That's what they sense God calling them to do. Now, what happens right after the story we're going to look at in depth today, as you have Jesus uh, inviting other people and, and working in this participatory thing of uh, people coming and asking for help, and Jesus responding. And so it's this, it's this dance of uh, people saying, yes, I want more, and God responding with yes and myriad forms. And we see that happen in a couple different healing stories. And Jesus, who is looked at as a rabbi and as a holy man, uh, crosses lines he should not have been crossing, and religious people called him out for it. But there was something about Jesus that recognized that if our attitude is who is not in the club, we've already gotten off on the wrong step. If that's our primary question, how can we make the box smaller? 
you might as well just tell yourself, you are no longer in lockstep with the Spirit of God. You're no longer following in the footsteps of Jesus, who was radically inclusive. By the way, on this particular issue, and I'll talk more about this uh, today because it lends itself to it, uh, but regarding uh, our stance, this is Pride Month, and we can, we can truly celebrate that here at Crosswalk because we mean it. And we recognize the diversity in so many ways in our planet. And, and some of that has to do uh, with LGBTQ sensitivities and ways that are uh, not as common for some and more for others. And we just recognize and celebrate that our world is diverse and we have different expressions of life in many forms, including how we identify ourselves and gender, sexuality, orientation, all of those things. And so uh, to that end, uh, Stephen Corley reminded me, uh, and I asked him to print off uh, a, uh, an editorial piece that showed up in the Napa Valley Register, uh, who probably, since Stephen's on that board, he probably helped write this to some degree, maybe a paragraph or two. So anyway, he has some of these to hand out if you didn't get a chance to read it. Uh, please read it. If my sermon gets really boring, at least you have an interesting read. So there's something there. So thank you, Stephen, for copying that out. And I encourage you to read it because uh, Napa is an inclusive uh, town. And I'll talk more about what that means and how do we think about these things. Because even today in our in our country and in, even in a mainline denomination called the United Methodist Church, this is still an incredibly divisive issue. And that very large denomination, who is very similar, by the way, to the American Baptist Convention of the United States, which is what we're a part of. They're very similar in their orientation on things. It is breaking them apart, and it's breaking hearts in the process. And it's sad to see that this, this is the reality. It's to be expected uh, from human beings, but it's sad nonetheless. So let's take a look at a passage where Jesus is uh, breaking through uh, one of these barriers. So as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. So let's just stop for a moment and recognize some things here. First of all, we have a guy named Matthew. Uh, this happens to be from the Gospel of Matthew. This is the guy that this Gospel is named after, which is remarkable because he's sitting at his tax collector's booth which if you've got your Sherlock hat on, <laughs> what would you guess is his occupation? A tax collector, right. Uh, these were completely despised people uh, in ancient Israel, even more so than IRS agents are today. And the reason they were is because they didn't have, uh, they didn't have the interweb <laughs> like we do today. They didn't have uh, a gazillion forms that we could look at. They didn't have Google search that you could go and, and go through the archives to find out exactly to a penny how much you owed for your taxes. The person who told you what you owed was the tax collector. He knew exactly how much he had to get from you to satisfy Rome, but he had to decide how much more he could get away with to line his own pockets. And they did that very well, which is why they were extra hated beyond collecting taxes for Rome. They were looked at as traitors in that regard, but they were also looking at as benefiting off the backs of their own people. They were despised. 
But Jesus sees this guy who's absolutely despised and is not welcome in any Jewish circle except in his own like-minded people, other tax collectors and other quote-unquote sinners. And Jesus sees this guy and doesn't shake a finger at him and say, naughty, 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 <laughs> or you're sinful by your nature or by your choice. He says, follow me and be my disciple. Come and learn from me. Come and learn my way. And by the way, for a rabbi to invite somebody to be your disciple is no small thing. This is a very, very select audience. Usually in the rabbinical world, uh, you had to really go through the paces uh, to, to be welcomed under the tutelage of a rabbi. Uh, the people that Jesus chose, not the ones who you know, had the best education, the best pedigree, he chose ordinary people, and now <laughs> he's choosing more than an ordinary person. He's choosing somebody who is hated by his countrymen for a reason. Follow me and be my disciple. This is a huge, huge invitation to the table. And Jesus said to him, Jesus said to him, so Matthew got up and followed him. Remarkable. So something is transacting in Matthew. We're not sure what but something enough for him to leave that, presumably, profession behind, walk away from the greed that was inherent in that, because he sensed there was something better with this Jewish peasant rabbi. I remind you that, Jew, that uh, Jesus was not this really well-off, well-dressed, uh, wearing the right shoes, wearing the right handbag, driving the right uh, kind of camel. This is Jesus who's dirt poor, who most of his life was grateful to have one meal a day. And there were probably many days he did not. He was a carpenter, which did not mean like finished carpenter who can do good work for good money. He was probably like a rough carpenter of his day, meaning very little money, very little means to do well with. He was part of the 0.1% extreme peasant class. So for Matthew to look at him and say, I'd like more of what you've got, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Something sparked with him and to say, I have to go with this guy. I can't not go with this guy. So later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home, which was probably a pretty nice home, as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. You know what that means? This is going to be a great party. <laughs> That's what this means. This is going to be amazing. And so Jesus, this rabbi, and his followers are going to this party with all these people that nobody uh, from, the, from the church crowd uh, is okay with. And they're in the wrong place now. But when the Pharisees saw this, probably from across the street, uh, Pharisees, by the way, um, my friend and colleague, uh, Jim Brenneman, who's spoken here, he's the president of our, our, of our related seminary in Berkeley and also a biblical scholar, he would correct the, the, the gospel here and say uh, that these are true Pharisees that we're looking at, but they're kind of Pharisees gone amok because Jesus was a Pharisee and Jesus was a, a healthy, well-minded, growing Pharisee. But what we saw in Jesus' world who were taking shots at him, especially in the northern region where the Pharisees dominated, uh, they had gotten into the same rut that we often get into. They were focused on legalism. They were focused on the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. They were focused on keeping the box tight and small. 
And so they were reacting to what they were seeing. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, not Jesus, but his disciples, who were easier prey, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Now, I like that the New Living Translation, which I use a lot, uh, gives us that word plainly, because it's probably a very accurate uh, translation for what they thought of the partygoers in this space. And by extension, are considering whether or not the scumminess of the party hosts and, and comrades, just how much that scumminess was going to rub off on Jesus and the other disciples. Because the Pharisees, mind you, good church-going folk, would never be caught there with them. These others who have betrayed Israel and betrayed the faith. But when Jesus heard this, he steps in and he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. He's quoting scripture to these scripture nerds. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Or put another way from Eugene Peterson's uh, translation called The Message, I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. Pretty good stuff. Might want to memorize that one, because that's a, that's a good practice of Jesus. Who are we as followers of the Spirit of God? And so my questions uh, that I have for us today, uh, pretty, pretty simple. So easy to answer. How are we like the characters in this story? And there are characters in the story that we want to be like. There are characters in this story that we wish we weren't like. And there are some characters in the story that we hope we're never like. And I'm wondering what your capacity is to be comfortable wondering about such things. And by the way, speaking of comfort and uncomfortableness, shout out to Gordon Wagner for teaching last week. I thought he did a fantastic job. Yeah, very good. And I just want to say, if any of you would like to make lots of people uncomfortable, uh, you're welcome to teach. I, if you've got something, you know, he told me a couple, three months ago, I've got a fire in my belly. I'd love to talk about this passage. And I knew it would fit last week. And so I, and I knew I needed covering. And so it, it worked out great. If you've got a fire in your belly about something, I will help you craft stuff and think things through. I'll resource you with stuff, help you with stuff. Uh, we've had some people uh, do this in the past. Pam uh, Gums uh, taught in January, which I deeply appreciated, uh, a teaching she's probably given many times in her work with a nonprofit. So I knew she was a pretty easy handoff, and Gordon's been in theater uh, forever, so I knew he was an easy handoff. So if it terrifies you talking, I can help some with that. But that's part of a wonderful reality of our church is we are we we lean into the priesthood of all believers. And if you've got something to say, I want to help you define that and say it if you want. Just let me know, and we'll work on that together. So, but this all has to do with being uncomfortable. And so we have an uncomfortable thing uh, right before us here, which is to wonder about ourselves. And then, sort of these underlying questions as we sort that out: Who are we being invited to become? because there are some invitations happening here uh, all over the place uh, in this story. And if we're being invited to become something, how do we go about doing that? 
And the reason on a day where we talk about practices, I'm so thrilled that this text showed up uh, as the text to, to talk about is because I could very easily talk to you about things that you already know about if you come to Crosswalk Munch. The five primary movements of Jesus that lead toward this newness of life, this abundance of life, stretching as lifelong learners, always thinking, always wondering, what am I missing? What's, what's possible? What haven't I thought of before? What am I not seeing yet? Uh, serving each other, serving the masses, whoever they are, just because they're human beings and we should serve them. And not just human beings, but all of the creation. How are we serving the whole creation? And then standing up for grace and justice on individuals, extending grace. And when it's a group of people that expresses itself as social justice. And so how do we do that as Jesus people effectively? How do we break away and connect with God? And how do we be incarnate with others and deep community? These are the five big steps. If you want to write all those down, you can also go to our website. They're all over the place there. Uh, I could have gone deep on this, but the reality is that I don't think those were the primary things for Jesus. I mean, they were, but I don't think that's where it all started. I think it started for Jesus where he, he just experienced something so profound of God late in life for him. He started his ministry somewhere maybe 30, 30 to 36 years old, somewhere in there, which in that day and age, that's like late middle age. And so something shifted his thinking away from what was normal to something that was big and profound. And I think all those movements that I just described for Jesus, I think those just were fruits. I think he just did them naturally because he couldn't not do them. I think he had to know more and had to think more because he had such a hunger to know more. And I think he had to serve people because he could see them. He had a unit of vision that these are not others. Uh, these are not illegal. These are not sinful. They're people. And his heart broke because he recognized that the people had need and he could do something about it. He stood up for grace and justice because he recognized that there were some people in his world, just as there are in our world, who do not have the same level of access to things that maybe most other people do. And they don't have a voice with which they can raise their hand and say, I've got a problem here. And so he was the one to come along and lend his own voice and his own authority to their cause. And he did this for groups of people like leper colonies. When he heals them, when he sends them home, it's like he's saying to the, the, the leaders of Judaism, you got this whole group wrong. When he heals people who've been born with whatever ailments they have and he heals them, he's saying to the religious authorities who said, you are the other, you are despised by God, you were born that way because God does not care for you. He was correcting that saying, you've got it wrong. And he made it known. You know that he would break away for his camping trips and spiritual retreats and time alone in the morning to foster his reality with God. And he did his whole ministry not alone. He was not the Lone Ranger, but he did it with friends so that he could be with them and they could impact him and he could impact them. It was a beautiful thing. And I think it all came very naturally. Now, some of us, uh, my guess is if we took time to tell everybody our story about how we came to faith, I would guess that many of you have had one of those seasons in your life where you had an aha moment, uh, maybe where uh, you, you gave your life over to this thing we call faith. You might have used different words for it, where 
on the back end of it, you would say, that's the day that I that I got saved. You might use that language, or that's the day where I was born again. You might use that language. That's the day I had the epiphany that changed my life. That might be it. That's the day I became a believer of some kind, or I took a deeper step of commitment that really was a milestone in my life, all those things. And if you're like me in my stories, because I've had multiple milestones like that, uh, then you can resonate with what I'm saying. Because in that moment of white hot passion for God, you probably very naturally did all those things. You wanted to know more. You wanted to serve more. You wanted to care for those who were getting picked on. You wanted to be with other believers to study and understand and be a part of this thing. And you wanted to have a deeper uh, personal relationship with God. Am I right? Is that about right? But then what happens? Sometimes life goes on. We get distracted by reality. And that white hot passion starts to cool. And just like an ember uh, in a fire that is pulled away from the rest of the coals, it starts to get a little less warm. And we find ourselves, maybe I'm the only one, but we find ourselves less apt to do those things which were once so easy and natural and unforced. We don't find ourselves spending much time studying as we once did. We're not serving as much and as easily as we once did. And sometimes it even gets uglier than that. Maybe we feel like we're obligated to serve. And so we're, we're serving out of obligation. And that is okay for a moment. But I've seen this destroy people over time. I mean, destroy people. So that they feel so obligated to serve, even in the church, that they get utterly fried they're no longer walking in their true selves because they're too angry. No, not what they once were. Sometimes we used to show up for people, and we haven't. Sometimes we would break away to be with God so naturally, and we find ourselves not doing that. We find ourselves pulling away from community. Well, why is that? And How do we correct that? Well, I got some good news for you. Just on the one side that I think that all those movements of Jesus, they, they, they do come naturally like fruit on the vine. Uh, when we're white-hot passionate for God, those same movements can help us get back to the passion. We don't have to recreate the passion out of thin air. But by doing the footsteps of Jesus, this is sort of the difference of two different frames of psychology. And what I'm talking about is a behavioral approach to psychology. And in terms of your faith development, if your faith is dead, take a look at your life. Are there things missing uh, from your life that you know that Jesus did? And if you can look at just starting with those five areas, if you can say, well, are you doing anything to, to learn anymore in your faith? And if your answer is no, great news. You can start today, and I will give you a library of books to choose from <laughs> and boring videos. Thank you, Gordon, uh, to watch if you'd like, uh, if that's what you want. Uh, or maybe you're seeing that you're not doing anything for anybody else. You're not serving in any, any other way, which means that you're kind of getting boxed in and insular. And so maybe serving is going to be that thing that helps you get back in step with Jesus. Or maybe it's standing up for somebody with grace and justice. Or maybe it's reintroducing spiritual disciplines into your lives. Or maybe it's just being in closer community and growing together. Just as it works one way very naturally, it also, I think, can work the other way very naturally. And by the way, none of this is because you have to do it. 
I've got fantastic news for you. You don't have to do any of this. And God isn't going to love you less. You don't have to do any of it. You are under no obligation not to say yes to any of this. Just like Matthew was under no obligation to say yes to follow. And the other people who he invited to his party, his own only friends, <laughs> other tax collectors and sinners, uh, they were under no obligation to come to the party. And maybe there were some who chose not to come because they were worried that maybe it was a setup, that maybe this Pharisee called Jesus was going to act just like so many Pharisees did to them in their past. And they said no to the invitation. They missed out on the kegger and the good food and stuff. Invitations abound. The Pharisees were invited to open their eyes to see people not as their labels that they have helped create, but as human beings who God loves. And they had the option to say yes to that invitation or no that invitation. The disciples, they had the option probably to, to dial it in and maybe say to Jesus, hey, I heard about the party night today, so sorry. <laughs> just not feeling up for it, just a little bit tired. I uh, had a long day fishing and I just, I'm gonna nap instead if that's okay with you, Jesus. And you know what? Jesus would have been said, would have said to Peter or his brother, he said, that's cool. That's fine. Rest is good. Rest is good. The invitation is just here for you to do what you want with. And that should feel really good because the God that we are here to try to understand who this being is, the spirit, this presence is gracious like that. But I want to talk about some uglier things in this story about how did the Pharisees get to this place? The ones who weren't great Pharisees here, who were picking on the disciples and then got schooled by Jesus, how did they get like they were? How did they get to such a place where they and so many others that they led uh, had such a terrible attitude and perspective on tax collectors? I don't know for sure. We don't have that much information on a lot of characters that we see uh, in stories like this. But I wonder if Matthew is like me in his job. Both of my grandpas were Baptist pastors, like me. Well, not like me, but <laughs> you get the idea. Uh, and my dad uh, was a Baptist pastor. I mean, born into my family with my gene pool and my history, I could have easily said to anybody who was taken, you know, wondering about me, who I am, why are you becoming a pastor? Why would you do that? I could easily punt and just say, well, how could I not be? You know, my brother struggles with that. I don't think he'll be upset me saying this, not that he'll be tuning into this, but uh, he is, he's, he's an incredibly gifted person, incredibly bright person. I think he could have been great as a pastor, but he chose not to do that because he recognized that his true passion has to do with mechanical engineering. And he's a great mechanical engineer. And he's amazing with his hands. He can fix anything. He can build anything. He can understand all kinds of building kinds of stuff and scientific stuff, because that's how his brain is wired. But I know he struggles. He struggles because he didn't follow in the family business. Would it be possible for a person like Matthew, if he was like me, to just kind of say out loud, well, I was kind of born into this. I was kind of born to be a tax collector. 
So blame my parents and blame my grandparents because it's their genes that are floating in my blood. Or maybe, maybe they would just say, you know what? Life is short and I'm getting nowhere as a carpenter here in Northern Israel and Galilee. And so I just want to make a buck. I'm tired of seeing my wife and kids not have a meal. And I saw the flyer, got it in the mail uh, from the Roman government uh, looking for new agents. And I thought, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to give it a shot. They had on-the-job training and everything. And so I went for it and I got the gist and I found out at first I was going to go in all honest and just be straight up. This is, this is all it takes. But then, you know, you're kind of in a culture and the culture is greedy. And I just kind of found myself swept into this thing. And all of a sudden I was just like every other tax collector. So sorry, uh, but I just kind of got swept into the whole thing. And now they're being judged as they should be. But what was lost sight? by the Pharisees, is that at the end of the day, they're not tax collectors, they're human beings. And so I wonder uh, if we struggle with that in any way in our culture. And in my email that I sent out to you yesterday, uh, I in response to the graffiti stuff, and this is not the first time, this may be, we've probably had this happen half a dozen times over the years, and it'll happen some more, and We'll just buy more hand sanitizer and <laughs> more posters and more Sharpies and more zip ties uh, to, to put those back up. But I mentioned in there that I, I can only imagine what the ones who crossed out our welcoming sign or tried to, I can only imagine what they were thinking based on my own experience in my own life. And so I just want to touch on that to find out if any of us here struggle being the not-so-good kind of Pharisee like I have. Because that's one of the characters that we see here. And my hunch is, well, my hunch is I may not be alone in my human experience. I grew up a product of the 1980s. Uh, I was in um, middle school and high school in the 80s, and the 80s uh, was not as open <laughs> Uh, as we are in today's culture. Uh, we made fun of people who were gay. Oh, it was an insult to call somebody gay if they were your friend. Uh, and that's just what everybody did. And I didn't think a lot of it because that's what everybody thought. And so if you fell in line with this kind of a rhetoric and just saw people in that way as weird or different or you know, push them aside as the other, um, there was very little pushback to that because the whole culture was essentially saying, yeah, that's right. And it wasn't just in my high school. It was in every high school, every high school. I was in the theater department, and it was still present there where maybe part of your brain might think, well, okay, well, I know you played football and basketball and stuff. Yeah, but I was really in the theater department. And sure, it showed up in sports, like you might guess but it was also in theater, which was somewhat surprising. Not as bad, and what you'd get a little bit schooled if you were reckless with your behavior, reckless with your attitude in front of the teachers primarily, who knew better and who would speak into such things. But it wasn't just the school. It was, it was the culture. It was the church culture. It was what was on movies. It was what was perpetrated in uh, comedians. It was absolutely everywhere. This was the air that we were breathing in our entire culture. Am I wrong on this? Am I right? 
This is everywhere. And so, of course, of course, it makes sense that being a product of the culture that I'm swimming in, that I would reflect in some ways, to some extent, that culture. The only thing that buffered me, really, was that my parents um, were, were graceful Christians. They weren't the judgmental Christians. I never heard about hellfire brimstone stuff growing up. Or my motive for following uh, Jesus never had to do with threats of hell. Never. It was always about, we want to be good people in the world. And so part of that rhetoric was, you be kind to everybody. And so that acted as a governor on me. I wasn't always kind. But I wonder what it would have been like in my world if they'd have modeled something very different. If they were outspoken about their hatred and their worldview and were slurring, I never heard them slur anything. But if what would it be like if I heard them do all kinds of slurs against people uh, like this? My hunch is that if my role models, my parents were doing this, then I would be more apt uh, to behave like them because they're my role models. They're the ones who are teaching me what it looks like to be a human being. And if they're Christians, then all the more. Lynn and I came across this uh, bumper sticker uh, the other day. Let me see if I can find this just briefly. Uh, we both read it. Lynn took a picture of it. There it is. Can you all see it? Yeah. Of course not. So on this, uh, on this car, uh, it just simply reads, this is just a couple days ago, straight, conservative, Christian, gun owner. And when Lynn and I read that, after we vomited for a while, then we came back and, and we talked about, you know, that that sucks. It really sucks that within Christianity, within the church itself, we are struggling to follow such a basic thing that Jesus taught and modeled. And we can't seem to get it right. I mean, we kind of are. We're moving forward. But, but I guess I'm trying to confess to you that I struggled with this particular issue because I didn't know that I should be struggling with this issue. You know what I'm saying? The whole culture is oriented a particular way. That's the way every voice was saying, almost every voice was saying, this is how you should think. The only one that was different, the only voice that was different, something in here. That when I got to know a couple of my classmates, first in high school and then in college, that started the change. And one was a fellow classmate in high school who uh, was just effeminate. Um, and he knew he couldn't express more than that. But I saw how he was treated. And I thought it sucked. And I never gave him crap. Because I knew that he was gay. You know what I mean? Even as I'm telling friends they're gay and trying to insult them. It doesn't make any sense. But you get what I'm saying. In college, uh, that grew even more intense for me to recognize who the hell am I? Who the hell am I to tell another child of God that they are unloved by God? And that started to grow in me, but it also got shifted for a while. 
so when I was in seminary, I was kind of, you know, in a very diverse environment and came out of that, but I was really informed by a conservative Christianity, which was very effective at that time. And using some of their bells and whistles helped grow churches that I've led. And so what I didn't realize that along with the bells and whistles and their methodology came a theology that was not so lovely toward the other. And so for my first church, and even for first, my first few years here, I was not where I am now. I was not. I wish I could tell you differently. I wish I could tell you that, you know, from day one here, I was putting out the pride flags, but I was not because I could not. Because it hadn't fully dialed in yet. It took years. It took years for me to do the study, to, to see what was really happening scripturally. And that helped a lot. That helped my brain make sense of things and helped me understand, just to say this absolutely clearly, that what the Bible is talking about is not what we're talking about today. That we're talking about people who uh, are virtually raped in different ways. Uh, that's what you're looking at in the scriptures, the Old Testament and New Testament both. We are not talking about a same gender covenant who want to do life together and want to pursue shalom together and the depths of love together. That's not what the Bible is talking about when they're talking about anything to do with homosexuality. Go watch my sermon if you don't believe me. But the more the beautiful thing is, is that, that that helped free me up. And it was like, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. And it helped me get stronger and more bold emotionally, which gave me a new clue that some of what we're talking about here is only partly intellectual. In fact, I'm confident that even if you listen to my sermon on this, or many others that are out there now from other scholars who are much more scholarly than me, who come at it not just from that one angle of biblical interpretation, but bring a whole lot of extra theology to it too, so that by the end of it, when you get it all together, you're like, how have we been missing this for so long with this particular community, this community group of our neighbors? Intellectually, you will get it, and yet there will be something in you that is still saying no. And that has to do with your emotional space. I imagine many moons ago uh, that there were people uh, who dared to say that the earth was round and that it revolved around the sun. And these heretics started saying it out loud. And you know what happened? They were shunned for their beliefs. And even after people could see the scientific evidence for this reality, the emotional pull to not go against the cultural reality was so strong, they dared not say it, think it, believe it. Better to just ignore it and go on with your life. After all, what difference does it make to me if the earth is flat or round? Uh, if I say it one way or another, not going to make any difference. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go tomorrow. I'm going to wake up, and the dawn's still going to rise in the east and set in the west. Doesn't matter if the earth is round or flat. No matter what I think, who cares? But the reality is that we got to care because we are not I and me. We are we. And when we abuse one for their way of being and who they are, we're abusing all.
even if we can't see it. We eventually end up hurting ourselves. Where are you on this issue and other issues like it? I mean, this is a hot button issue, the hottest button issue in the church today. And now I'm telling you without any question at all that I'm for equality, equity the whole way through from a biblical theological perspective, from an intellectual standpoint, but also from my heart. That these are neighbors. These are Matthews. These are people who uh, did not have the choice. It's who they are. But we could easily talk about women and equality and ministry and wonder why that isn't there. We could then really, really make everybody uncomfortable. And we could start talking about race issues and wonder, is it possible that our country had foundations that did not look equitably on people with varying skin tones. I don't mean to, maybe this is new information to you, but is it possible that that reality has not gone away? And who would we ask to find out if it has gone away or not? Don't ask Pete Shaw, because I'm a Dutch white guy. How would I know? <laughs> maybe we need to ask people who don't look like me what are things really like for you? Maybe we, need, maybe we need to ask people who are not straight. Tell me about your experience. Maybe, especially men who love to mansplain, need to ask women, what is it like to be in a still masculine-dominated culture? Maybe when we start to listen, instead of being the Pharisees on the other side of the street, just going through our old tapes, our old cultural conditioning. Maybe if we start being more like the good Pharisee Jesus and come alongside and see the humanity, maybe that will begin to soften us. Maybe when we find out that God loves everybody truly equally and is with them equally, maybe then we'll actually start to believe and grow on the depth of God's love and grace for ourselves. Maybe you're in a roadblock because you're not sure if God is really with you anymore. Maybe it's when we communicate grace and love to another through our listening and our understanding and we begin to believe it again for ourselves. So what does it mean to follow in the footsteps of Jesus? What does it mean to practice like Jesus? It's all in this one story. It's all there. It's the reaching out. It's seeing people differently. It's choosing to invite in. It's choosing by that invitation to say that there is more. Everything is wrapped up into this story. And all of us is wrapped into this story. There are some days when I bet you're a lot like Jesus. Keep going and doing that. There are some days when you're the draggies like the disciples, and you're just trying to figure out what the heck is going on. <laughs> where, where is Pete taking us now? <laughs> cool. All right. There are some days where you're like the draggies from Matthew's friends who are just coming in to try to understand this new reality called process theology or whatever Borg has to say and so many other voices that are stretching our thinking all the time. How Just how big is God? How much more can we take? Uh, and the beauty of that, and unfortunately, there are times when we feel judged like Matthew, and worse, when we are the judger, like the Pharisees who didn't get it. 
What is the Spirit saying to you today about practicing, about following in the footsteps of Jesus? I want to have just a moment of quiet uh, with you, and then we'll get to uh, this prayer. It's a rendition of the Lord's Prayer. I modified it a little bit here and there, so that's just to keep you awake. Uh, but uh, before we get to that, we'll say that out loud. Then I have one final thing that we're going to do together uh, after we do the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but for now, just if you don't mind, just close your eyes and be still a moment. And is there anything at all that uh, maybe from what I said or maybe nothing of what I said, but what the Spirit is saying to you today, is there any take-home for you today? Very specifically for you. Not a generality like, oh yeah, we all be, I gotta be nice people, that kind of thing. No, for you as a person. What are you being invited into? The Spirit of God is within you and all around you, speaking to you nudging you. What does the Spirit of God want you to do in response? What is the invitation, the action for you today? Maybe for some of you, it is truly actionable, like, oh, I need to study more. I need to serve more. I need to grace more, be with other people more. I need to spend more quiet time with God. But Maybe for some of you, it's time to look in the mirror and be honest, honest about who you are and who you're becoming. Spirit of God, give us courage even as you give us clarity. Because as wonderful and as beautiful as the shalom you invite us into is. It is terrifying to look at ourselves. We don't want to see the ugly parts that are true of us. We skirt around those with our friends. And yet to go through that, to ask the question and to really listen and see for ourselves who have we been who are we now and who are we becoming this leads to beauty to beauty to beauty to depth to depth to depth even though difficult god help us so to that end we want to pray this prayer together uh, an adaptation of Jesus' prayer, the Our Father. Let's say it together. Our loving, supportive, holy Abba, your presence is here and everywhere. May your divine commonwealth come. May your will be done through us. We are grateful for the gift of food and work for all to eat their fill. May we work for a world where mutual grace and respect abound. May we foster shalom everywhere. Strengthen us for the work we're called to do. Amen. Let it be so.